Hello everyone and welcome to the September 3rd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that an employer is not allowed a 15% permanent disability decrease for its offer of regular work to an employee who lost no time from work. Here's what happened in the published opinion of the City of Sebastopol versus WCAB and William Braga. William Braga was employed by the City of Sebastopol as a fire captain. He sustained a continuous trauma industrial injury resulting in hearing loss. Braga lost no time from work as a result of his injury. After he was declared PNS, the city served Braga with a notice of offer of regular work and commenced making weekly PD payments reflecting a 15% decrease in benefits. Braga accepted the offer of regular work. Stipulations with request for an award reflecting the 15% decrease were submitted to the WCAB for approval. The work comp judge ruled that since Braga lost no time from work, the city was not entitled to a 15% decrease in Braga's permanent disability, nor was Braga entitled to a 15% increase. The WCAB issued its opinion in order denying the city's petition for reconsideration and the employer petitioned the Court of Appeal for review of the opinion. The Court of Appeal affirmed the WCAB in the published opinion. The Court of Appeal noted that whether Section 4658D3A applies when the industrial worker has lost no time from work and continues in his or her regular work appears to be a question of first impression for the appellate courts. Thus, they reviewed conflicting board-level decisions on this issue. In 2007, the WCAB adopted the position urged by the city in this case in the old decision of Audis versus City of Rohnert Park. However, the work comp judge was persuaded by the contrary reasoning in two more recent decisions. The 2009 case of Tushia versus County of Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and the 2011 case of Aguiano versus Amy's Kitchen. The legislative history of Labor Code Section 4658 D2 and 3 indicates the intent was to provide return to work incentives. The court reasoned that there would seem to be no reason to create a return-to-work incentive when the employee is currently working at his or her regular job and has lost no time from work. The court concluded that Section 4658D3A is inapplicable because Braga remained in his regular position with no time lost from work. The Court of Appeal placed limits on the special mission exception to the going and coming rule. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation versus WCAB and Robert DeCourcy Jr. Robert DeCourcy Jr. was a correctional officer employed by California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. He exchanged shifts with another employee and, while driving to work for that shift, he was involved in a single vehicle accident. He filed a workers' compensation claim, which was denied based upon the going and coming rule. DeCourcy worked at Pilot Rock Conservation Camp, a minimum security facility located at a relatively remote area of the San Bernardino Mountains. It houses between 70 to 92 inmates, but usually numbers around 85. The inmates do fire suppressant work. 
There are seven officers, one sergeant, and one lieutenant assigned to the Pilot Rock facility. There are three shifts, and the officers rotate their shifts every three months. Officers sometimes swapped shifts. Sergeant Jukonj testified that swapping shifts benefited the employer by reducing possible overtime, since he would have to call someone on the overtime list if an officer was not able to come in for his shift. It is also more efficient and makes his job easier. Junkanj further testified that it is mandatory for the camp to be fully staffed and that every shift is a special need. DeCourcy left his house at 4.30 a.m. on the day of the injury to work the morning shift. He said he intended to get there early to exchange information with the staff. The morning was cold and frosty, and he hit a patch of black ice and spun off into a ravine. He suffered severe injuries. The board found that the special mission exception to the going and coming rule applied because the swapping of the shift was done with the implied approval of the employer and for the employer's benefit. Therefore, it concluded that two of the three tests required to meet the special mission exception applied. The additional test was whether the activity was extraordinary in relation to routine duties. Again, the board found that this test was met because the staffing requirements of the camp, which required staffing of every shift, constituted a special need. The Court of Appeal disagreed and reversed the award in the unpublished opinion. The court could not conclude that de Corsi was rendering extraordinary services to his employer simply by showing up for work in another's place to perform routine duties. The court concluded that characterizing every shift as a special need renders the concept of special meaningless. Experts now say that NFL comp claims may force changes to the football rules. An insurance broker who has worked with NFL teams' workers' compensation coverage said that the workers' compensation costs could force significant changes to how the game is played on the field. Duke Nidringhouse of J.W. Terrell, a St. Louis-based insurance firm that has brokered workers' compensation insurance for NFL teams, says that linemen, for example, might not be allowed to crash into each other from three-point stances in the near future. And while others disagree with that assessment, there is agreement among insurance, NFL, and legal sources that workers' compensation issues are yet another looming financial cloud for teams. Nyringhouse said that most companies know five years after a given year how much money in claims they'll be paying. But after five years, these NFL teams have no clue what the future will look like. The NFL is facing a barrage of legal challenges over player injuries. More than 3,000 former players or family members have filed lawsuits against the league seeking concussion-related damage claims. And the league and some of its insurers are volleying lawsuits over which head injury damages each should be responsible for covering. But the workers' compensation issue is separate. Workers' compensation has been an option for players and ex-players for years. Until recently, comp claims have been manageable because teams had a fairly good idea of what they might be facing for obvious injuries. In recent years, teams have paid workers' compensation deductibles to insurance companies in the neighborhood of about 500000 per player who filed a successful claim. 
That number has moved to about $1 million per successful claim, and it's not unheard of for teams to be paying $3 million to $5 million annually for claims over a 10-year period. California is the only state that allows employees, including players, to file a cumulative trauma case, and it is no time period restriction on when a player must file a claim. And now our fraud report. California Insurance Code 12922 requires the insurance commissioner to prepare an annual report of department activities. Of interest is the detail on fraud prosecutions discussed in the enforcement branch section of the 258-page report just released this week. The fraud division has nine regional offices serving all 58 counties. The enforcement branch headquarters supports investigations in the automobile, organized automobile fraud interdiction program, workers' compensation, disability and health care, and property and casualty fraud programs. The legislature established the workers' compensation fraud program in 1991. The law made workers' compensation fraud a felony, requiring insurers to report suspected fraud and established a mechanism for funding enforcement and prosecution activities. The 1991 law also established the Fraud Assessment Commission to determine the level of assessments to fund investigation and prosecution of workers' compensation insurance fraud. The funding comes from California employers who are legally required to be insured or self-insured. The total aggregate assessment for last year was over $50 million. Last year, the Fraud Division identified and reported almost 6,000 suspected fraudulent claims assigned 501 new cases, made 254 arrests, and referred 272 submissions to prosecuting authorities. Potential loss amounted to nearly $270 million. Last year, the district attorneys reported a total of 797 fraud arrests. District attorneys prosecuted over 1,200 cases, resulting in 666 convictions. They obtained restitution of over $58 million, and over $8 million was collected. The majority of California licensed insurers are required by the California Insurance Code and regulations to establish and maintain special investigative units. Regulations also require each insurance company to submit an annual compliance report to the Fraud Division, SIU Compliance Review Office. The SIU annual reports must provide adequate information and documentation regarding the insurer's anti-fraud operations, policies, and procedures, and anti-fraud training. The primary responsibility of the Special Investigative Unit Compliance Review Office is to inspect insurance companies to ensure regulatory compliance with regard to the establishment, staffing, and operation of the insurer's SIU unit. The office also is responsible for updating, distributing, reviewing, monitoring, and tracking the annual SIU compliance report filed by over 1,100 insurance companies each year. And in medical news, a new study says that many physicians are unaware of the advantages of nerve transfer surgery. A study in the August issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons points out that in recent years, great strides have been made in nerve transfer surgery. This new surgery allows many patients with a nerve injury in their upper extremity to have a remarkable recovery and improved functional outcomes. But 
Researchers say that patients are often referred too long after their injury, leading them to believe that many physicians are unfamiliar with the surgery. And the lead author of the study said that any nerve surgery is less likely to work if the referral is too late. Nerve injuries can be caused by a variety of events, including vehicular and sporting accidents, falls from heights such as construction accidents, and surgeries for head and neck cancer. Once a nerve is cut from a muscle, it has to be re-innervated within about 18 months before the muscle atrophies. Since nerves only regenerate one millimeter per day, sometimes they cannot regenerate and reach the muscle before it wastes away. If you do nerve reconstruction work and surgery before six months after a nerve is severed, then patients do far better. If it has been more than 18 months, even if the nerve regeneration length is two centimeters, it may still be too late. Nerve transfer surgeries are needed when a nerve end is non-functional or when nerve reconstruction would require an excessively long nerve graft. And the upper extremity nerve transfers are most commonly used for injuries involving the brachial plexus, a network of nerves that run near the neck and shoulder. Other indications include complex injury to peripheral nerves, especially associated with fractures and dislocations, lacerations, injuries from projectiles, and cancer. Orthopedic surgeons, plastic surgeons, and neurosurgeons perform the bulk of nerve transfer surgeries. But it is important for a variety of healthcare professionals to know what nerve transfer surgery can achieve. The effectiveness of spinal manipulation divides medical opinion. Experts are having a debate whether spinal manipulation for neck pain should be abandoned on the British Medical Journal website. Spinal manipulation is a technique that involves the application of various types of thrusts to the lower back or neck to reduce back pain, neck pain, and other musculoskeletal conditions. Some argue that cervical spine manipulation may carry the potential for serious neurovascular complications and that the technique is unnecessary and inadvisable. They say that studies provide consistent evidence of an association between neurovascular injury and recent exposure to cervical manipulation. Such injuries include vertebral artery dissection, a tear to the lining of the vertebral artery, which is located in the neck and supplies blood to the brain and stroke. They also point to the Cochrane Review of randomized trials of neck manipulation or mobilization, which concluded that as a standalone treatment, manipulation provides only moderate short-term pain relief and is unlikely to offer meaningful long-term benefit for people with neck pain. They add that other recent large, high-quality trials reinforce this message, suggesting that manipulation is not superior when directly compared with other physical interventions such as exercise. But others argue that cervical spine manipulation is a valuable addition to patient care and should not be abandoned. They point to high-quality evidence that they say clearly suggests that manipulation benefits patients with neck pain and raises doubt about any direct relation between manipulation and stroke. However, they acknowledge that when risk, benefit, and patient preferences are considered, there is currently no preferred first-line therapy and no evidence that mobilization is safer or more effective than manipulation. Another new study published in Spine says that surgeons order excessive off-guideline MRIs. 
Early MRI for workers' compensation claimants, claimants with low back pain is generally not recommended by clinical practice guidelines. Yet it is ordered in about one-fifth of cases, and it is more likely when patients consult a surgeon for their initial office visit rather than a primary care physician or a chiropractor. Some providers, especially those who typically see patients with severe injuries, such as surgeon providers, may routinely image most or all patients. The authors explained that early MRI, meaning within the first four to six weeks of symptoms, is generally not recommended except in patients with certain red flags, such as those with an infection, a history of cancer, and patients younger than 20 or older than 50. Early imaging should be considered a supplemental diagnostic tool for patients with red flags after the completion of a detailed medical history and physical exam. Results of the study showed that in total, nearly 35% of injured workers received an MRI within one year, and the mean time to MRI was 60 days. Nearly 20% of workers received an early MRI within 42 days of the injury. The initial visit type played a large role in determining whether a patient received an early MRI. Workers whose initial office visit was with a surgeon were 78% more likely to undergo early MRI than those who saw a primary care physician. Lower still was the rate of early MRI among patients who first consulted a chiropractor, as these patients were half as likely to receive an MRI as those initially visiting a primary care physician. Workers with radiculopathy and those with high Roland Morris disability scores also were more likely to receive an early MRI. Marital status, body mass index, job satisfaction, and health status were not associated with early MRI, according to the authors. The American College of Radiology and other groups have invested considerable groundwork to create guidelines and appropriateness criteria outlining the best evidence and best practice for MRI use for acute, nonspecific low back pain. And in financial news, the WCIRB refutes comp reform cost savings claims. SB 863 has now officially been passed in Sacramento and is awaiting signature by the governor. However, the WCIRB calculated that the package will not save employers money, but instead will add costs to the system. The American Insurance Association subsequently agreed. The WCIRB estimates the impact of the provisions in the legislations that are quantifiable at this time on injuries occurring in 2013 is an overall cost reduction of 2.2% or $0.4 billion. However, the increased PD benefit provisions effective on injuries occurring on or after January 1, 2014 are estimated to increase total costs by 3.7%. In total, by the 2014 injury year, the legislation is estimated to increase total system costs by 1.4% annually. These estimates reflect a preliminary assessment developed by the WCIRB staff based upon an initial review of the legislation. The WCIRB has not had the opportunity to fully review the cost implications of all of the changes, nor does the WCIRB staff have all the expertise and data necessary to fully and accurately assess the impact of these new laws. 
As a result, the WCIRB will not, will not be able to provide a formal evaluation of the cost impact of the provisions under consideration until such time as the WCIRB is able to convene an appropriate panel of those with expertise in evaluating the cost impact of legislative changes and any additional needed analysis is conducted. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkCop Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.